Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump administration's answer to the Peace Olympics is the largest ever set of new sanctions on North Korea. We'll consider possible outcomes. A new dark comedy from Britain is in theaters. Film contributor Milos Stalik talks with director Sally Potter about The Party. And some of the world's great flamenco performers are here. We'll hear about the Flamenco Festival on Weekend Passport. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. North Korea made a splash at the Olympics with Kim Jong-un's sister and a surprise invitation for South Korean President Moon to North Korea. The U.S. countered with Ivanka Trump at the closing ceremonies and today the so-called largest ever new sanctions. With me to talk about the outcome of the Peace Olympics is Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he's the author of The Korean War of History, amongst other books. Great to talk with you again, Bruce. Same here, Jerome. You know, what did you make of North Korea's effort, first of all, because they really seemed to whip out an awful lot of people on short notice, not just the cheerleaders and the pop stars, but they had a onslaught. They're going to bring the top intelligence guy in. They had the, the one of their top diplomats come with Kim Jong-un's sister. Uh, they really laid out a lot in a quick order. Well, it's completely unprecedented. Uh, that they would do this. There were two summits between the North and South Korean leaders uh, in 2000 and uh, 2007, uh, but held in Pyongyang. And and for Kim Jong-un to send his sister on short notice to uh, South Korea is really uh, something because, uh, I I mean, one can't imagine the security uh, concerns that uh, the North must have had with her being in the South and now, as you said, Kim Young-chul, who is, uh, used to run their top intelligence agency, he's coming uh, on the delegation for the closing ceremony. So it's, it's really uh, a, a sign, I think, that North Korea is uh, very, very serious about trying to improve relations uh, with the South. Now, now, the U.S. has countered here with Mike Pence, who does not s- smile or shake hands with Kim Jong-un's sister. And we get... Um, Today, this announcement that the U.S. is going to uh, unveil the largest ever sanctions on North Korea, uh, President Trump was going to make uh, flesh this out a little bit in a speech that he gave this morning, but he apparently did not do that very much. Perhaps he will do that at 1 o'clock. Uh, he's having an event with Malcolm Turnbull, which we'll be carrying on WBEZ. Um, but what do you make of the idea here to uh, – he's apparently going to – uh, sanction 60 companies and uh, several ships that are um, outside of the UN sanctions. And there is the U.S. also considering enforcement measures, including having the U.S. Navy stop and inspect ships uh, believed to be carrying prohibited cargo to and from North Korea. Well, this isn't uh, new in the sense that John Bolton uh, pushed his PSI or proliferation a security initiative back in the George W. Bush administration, uh, and a few ships were stopped on the high seas and, and boarded. Uh, the North Koreans uh, call this an act of war, which under international law it certainly can be. Uh, but it's also uh, very difficult, unless you have excellent intelligence, to find out which ships might be carrying contraband. North Korea has uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of ships on the high seas, that are flagged off into other countries like Panama. And, and so it, it's, uh, you know, you run the risk of stopping one ship after another and, and uh, coming up empty-handed. Plus, I mean, this is just throwing sand in the eyes of the North Koreans at a time when they're trying uh, with the, the South Korean leader to lessen tensions on the peninsula. 
Uh, in fact, with uh, Pence's visit, as he said, it was basically childish that he didn't reach over and say hello, shake hands with uh, Kim Yo Jong. Uh, you know, this is just a ridiculous behavior. I mean, if you're uh, going down a path that might end up in a conflict, and people look back on this and say, why didn't uh, Pence at least try to reciprocate in some way uh, North Korea's uh, presence there? Uh, you know, it's going to look terrible. And I thought it looked terrible anyway. And, and even worse was that Pence did not stand up when the joint uh, North-South team uh, entered the Olympic Stadium under the unified Korean flag. This was an insult to South Koreans as well as North Koreans. And then right now you have this proliferation initiative coming back. It's uh, the most hated of sanctions by the North Koreans. And I, I think just it's important to understand the background, which is that inside the Beltway on a bilateral basis, uh, foreign policy wonks and former officials and so on, they don't like President Moon. They think he's a progressive. They think uh, they need to keep him on a short leash. Uh, that was the term used by a former Obama administration official. And so this is going to lead to a great deal of uh, irritation between Seoul and Washington, it seems to me. Well, what does President do with this invitation from North Korea? He's been very uh, clever about it and said, well, I'll do it if it leads to some sort of uh, progress on the nuclear program in North Korea, uh, as he sees it. Uh, what Does he have to say yes, or can he say no? Well, he certainly can say no, and it may also be that North Korea would uh, disinvite him. There was this uh, episode at you know last week at the Olympics where apparently Vice President Pence's party agreed to secret talks with the North, uh, and then this was under South Korea's aegis, and then uh, when the talks were supposed to begin, the North didn't sh show up. I mean, I myself thought it was a typical North Korea diplomatic snub. They get the Americans thinking about talks, and then don't show up. And I'm sure they were crowing about that in Pyongyang, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't advance anything, of course. Uh, and so you have that in the background. And then President Moon has been, I think, very careful to leave his options open about whether he would go to the North or not. Uh, and I think if he demands that they commit to denuclearization before the talks, there won't be any talks. Uh, but perhaps during uh, the talks, he, uh, he can certainly bring up uh, that most important subject. But I don't know what he's going to do, but I do think he's really on a, a hot seat right now because uh, if he goes along with the, the newest sanctions, I think the North Koreans are going to be very upset. Uh, but if he doesn't go along, that, that uh, represents a real breach with the Trump administration. Well, it, is there um, a way that the South Koreans, uh, how do they bridge the gap here? It seems like they're, they're just in a, in a tough spot. They are in a tough spot, but uh, the way his mentor, uh, President No Mu Hyun, uh, approached this problem when he was president uh, from 2003 to 2008 9 um, he basically barreled ahead with a second summit in 2007 with agreements uh, like the uh, enlarging the Kaesong export zone in North Korea, uh, regardless of the fact that the Bush administration hated him and made that uh, very clear. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see President Moon uh, do all he can to stroke Trump. I mean, he said uh, tr uh, Trump's uh, initiatives have helped uh, bring about this you know, these talks between North and the North and the South. Uh, but I, uh, I think he's probably going to go forward. Uh, and, and if things get tough, I don't actually see what the Trump administration's options are. What are they going to do? Sanction South Korea for talking to uh, sanction North Koreans? Kim Jong-chul is right at the top of the list of sanctioned people by the United States. So I, uh, I think we're in for a, a very interesting period after the uh, Paralympics are over in mid-March. Uh, to see uh, exactly how President Moon handles this uh, very delicate and difficult situation. I'm talking with Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, and we're discussing the outcome of the Peace Olympics in South Korea. Uh, what is the, if the U.S. were to sit down and negotiate with North Korea, it seems like the Trump administration won't take anything than complete capitulation and giving up their, their nuclear program. Uh, and 
is there a, is there something to negotiate because the Trump administration just seems to want capitulation? Well, that's the same thing the Obama administration wanted under its uh, doctrine of strategic patience. So years and years went by uh, while North Korea perfected its atomic bombs and missiles, and and nothing was done. Uh, there are several things that could be negotiated. Above all, a freeze uh, on North Korea's continued uh, development of nuclear weapons and, and missiles. They have not demonstrated a capability to bring a warhead down, back down through the atmosphere. Uh, and also, it's not unclear whether they can miniaturize a nuclear weapon to fit on top of a missile. And so it would be very good uh, to negotiate a halt to their uh, testing and development right now, uh, before they get to the point where they threaten the American mainland. Uh, a second thing which the North Koreans have uh, suggested for decades is a formal end to the Korean War, rather than uh, the continuing armistice now uh, going on into, in its uh, seventh decade. Uh, that doesn't really cost the United States a lot, uh, and it's something that the United States could give uh, in, in terms of a bargaining uh, with the North Koreans in return for a freeze. Uh, the North also wants us to freeze uh, the war games that are supposed to start right after the Paralympics. Uh, they've been postponed while the Olympics are going on. And there is a precedent for the U.S. doing this in that these enormous uh, war games called Team Spirit with 200,000 uh, South Korean and American soldiers went on from 1976 to 94. But as part of the deal uh, to get uh, North Korea's plutonium frozen in the October Framework Agreement in 1994, uh, the U.S. suspended uh, Team Spirit and, and really never, uh, never uh, mounted those games again. The ones that they do mount are on a smaller scale than, than Team Spirit. So it seems to me that it's uh, entirely possible to negotiate our way out of this very dangerous situation. But I, I don't uh, expect the Trump administration to do that. I think they're going to continue with their so-called maximum pressure on North Korea. And as I said earlier, that's going to cause a lot of trouble with Seoul. Uh, it, does North Korea have—are they sitting in the catbird seat on this? Because even if the North, if the U.S. doesn't negotiate, uh, the, the North Koreans get a lot out of it. They get uh, reduced tensions with the South and with the region— and they get a lot of time to work on their nuclear program, lots more time. Well, I mean, if you remember back on New Year's Eve and the weeks before, there was uh, just tremendous tension over uh, the Korean Peninsula, and uh, that was the point at which Victor Cha decided he didn't want to be ambassador to Seoul because he had been involved in negotiations to give a so-called bloody nose to North Korea, some sort of limited attack. Uh, that would teach them a lesson, but not escalate into a general war. Uh, and on New Year's Day, Kim Jong-un just punctured that tension instantly, like air going out of a balloon. And, and uh, I think their diplomacy has been very smart and successful uh, in that they sent you know, mostly women, uh, their cheerleaders, uh, and and then uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, sister, and they all behaved uh, like normal human beings instead of the brainwashed automatons that most Americans think inhabit uh, North Korea. Uh, I thought Kim Yo-jung was particularly good in that she was uh, smart and poised and quiet and had this enigmatic uh, Mona Lisa smile all the time. Somebody called it Sphinx-like in the New York Times this morning, but I thought Mona Lisa was a better analogy. Uh, she conducted herself perfectly, and so did the cheerleading crew, and so did the athletes, and above all, from their standpoint, there weren't any defections. So uh, I think it, it's been a very successful uh, uh, diplomatic uh, move by, by North Korea. Uh, and North Korea is closing with um, one of their intelligence figures who's coming to, to see the end of the game. And we see uh, Ivanka Trump coming uh, for the closing ceremonies uh, for the U.S. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think that it's a mistake to send Ivanka Trump because it, it raises instant uh, comparisons with uh, Kim Jong-un's sister as if uh, Donald Trump's daughter is some sort of uh, – counterpart or some recompense or whatever for 
uh, uh, Kim Yo-jung's visit. I, I think it's a mistake also because she's not a diplomat. Uh, she's probably been briefed and all of that, but uh, this is, is a very serious question that we've been discussing, and she's not in a position uh, to deal with that or to answer any of those questions. Uh, Kim Jong Chul is, is uh, I'm sorry, Kim Young Chul is a very powerful figure, one of the top people in uh, North Korea. He was head of their General Reconnaissance Bureau, their top intelligence agency. Uh, and the South Koreans blame him for the sinking of the uh, South Korean ship, the Chonan, in uh, back in 2010. I never know whether these, you know, whether it's true that this person is individually responsible. But the fact is, he's very, very powerful. He's also on the sanctions list right at the top, as I said, and so uh, South Korea has to get a pass from the United States to let him cross the DMZ into into the South. But I I think it underlines the seriousness with which North Korea is approaching all of this. They are sending their top people into a situation where, uh, at least as far as I can tell, I, I don't know that they can really guarantee the security of these folks. So it, it, they took a risk, but so far it's been paying off for North Korea. And um, lastly, I was noticing in the run-up to the Olympics, there was a lot of controversy in South Korea about particularly the hockey team and President Moon's ratings were going down because people thought, well, they pushed out some South Korean hockey players for the North Koreans and that this was not going to end well for him. But his ratings are up now and the, the, the Olympics looked really successful. Well, they've been a big success, and let's hope they continue through the weekend until the end. Um, President Moon has ratings uh, that Donald Trump could only die for. He was in over 80% before this Olympic brouhaha developed, and then he dropped about 10 points uh, because, as you said, particularly younger people, millennials, were upset that uh, some South Korean women were kicked off the hockey team to make way for the North Koreans. But as time went by and as... uh, People noticed the behavior of the North Koreans, who were all on a smile campaign. They were all very friendly and you know, going to eat South Korean food and get ice cream and all this. I think it made a very good impression, and, and as a result, his uh, popularity rating has bounced back. And I, I think that's also something that very much bolsters uh, him in going forward with uh, diplomacy rather than threats of war and uh, you know, invading ships on the high seas. Bruce Cummings is professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of numerous books on Korea and Asia, including The Korean War, A History, amongst other books. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Bruce. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he'll talk about a new black comedy from Britain. I'm Jura McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Party is a word that can mean different things. There's political parties and there's have a good time party. Sally Potter is a British filmmaker whose new movie, The Party, brings together both kinds of parties with disastrous results. WBEZ film contributor Milo Stalik talks with Sally Potter about the dark comedy, The Party. So, Sally... You're not a filmmaker who is normally one would associate with comedy, and the party really comes kind of out of the left field. It's such an unusual film for you. What drove you to it? Well, you know, I've always liked to laugh as an audience member. Um, I love watching things that are really funny, not necessarily broad comedy, but which make me laugh for one reason or another. Um, And... um, I've, well, I think also that some of my earlier films, and certainly the performance work that I did before that, uh, had their own particular kind of wit <laughs> um, and uh, made people laugh. But they, indeed, they were never. I never thought of them within a kind of comedy genre. Whereas this time, I actually set out to 
make give the op- invitation, let's say, and the possibility for people to laugh cathartically at stuff that some of which is quite uh, shadowy and and difficult. Well, but you just woke up one morning and said, "Well, I, I want to see if I can really be funny." Uh, well, now you put it that way, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> You know, why not? Um, I, but I can't remember really how. It kind of crept up on me. And then when I started writing it, um, I found that some of the, the, the lines and the one-liners and things came out really easily. Uh, they sort of flowed out. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed letting rip, I mean, with, with some of the um, sweetly wicked stuff. Well, and we should say that the situation is is that this is a party, a dinner party, uh, put together to celebrate uh, Christine S- Scott Thomas, who has just been named the Shadow Health Minister. And what what is exactly Shadow Health Minister? Oh well, in the two party system in the UK, you've got the governing party literally sitting on one side of the large room on benches, facing the opposition party on the other, and the opposition party. Um, has its uh, shadow opposite. So you've okay. got the the, 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 sh- the Minister for Health who is actually in the government and then in the opposition party who doesn't have the power but has the power to influence is the shadow minister, the opposite number. So all these people come together in one house. It's one set, essentially, that you have yeah. and they are all friends. And then over the course of this party, their true selves come out. Well, certainly their secret lives. Okay. okay. Um, and possibly their hypocrisies get punctured and their self-belief gets questioned and the images that they had of who and what they really were become a moot point. So I think it's about the shattering of illusion and the difficulty for people to speak the truth in their personal lives just as much as it is, for example, for politicians to speak the truth in public life in their attempt to get uh, to win elections. You started this film before Brexit happened, but in a way it's it's a shadow over the film and kind of a background against the situation that you have here. Well, when I started writing it, you know, Brexit was not a word that anyone had ever heard of. It had not been possibly even invented. Um, but um, as it got closer to the shoot, uh, it became a very pressing issue. And, of course, the referendum happened exactly halfway through our two-week shoot. So um, it, it, was, it was there like a shadow, but it wasn't there as um, an element in the script when I was writing it. But I think these kind of events, like the election in the United States or like the Brexit vote in the UK, don't come out of nowhere. They've, you know, spent a long time building up to, and there's causes for these really surprising events. So you assembled really a wonderful cast for this, and in a way that's something that really resonates through the film so wonderfully because each of the actors is equally strong and strong against each other. Did you write this with these actors in mind? No, I tried not to write uh, with any particular actor in mind. I tried to let the characters emerge um, in the process of writing and not get in the way of them too much as they came, not try and make them say things or do things they wouldn't say or do. I have them surprise me, if you like. And sometimes if you fixate on a particular actor, that can do strange things, I think, to the writing process. But as soon as the final draft was done, then I went into the process of casting with great gusto and great pleasure. I love the process of casting. And it's like creating relationships, creating friendships that are surprising and choosing a bunch of actors also who would come into this film in the spirit in which it was written, which was... Uh, minimalist and fast and uh, lightweight in a certain way, even if it's dealing with heavyweight weight subjects. Um, people who would be prepared to take equal pay uh, at a low rate, um, which they did. Everyone paid the same. And it was in that spirit that the film was made. And these are all risk-taking and very, very generous actors who love to work and who love to be pushed into surprising parts of themselves in the process. And I think they each, as they've put it to me, upped each other's game as well, were stimulated by each other as, as by the project. They function almost as an ensemble. So Yes, absolutely an ensemble. So there's no one person kind of sticking out. Well, they each stick out individually. They each have their moment as well in the story, a big moment. But um, 
they're, they're very much in it together. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Telic speaking with filmmaker Sally Potter, whose new film is called The Party. What taught you to direct actors? How did you learn to direct actors? Oh, well, that's been a lifetime of learning. Um, I started out as well, um, well, filmmaking first, but then performing myself. And I think that's an essential part of the, uh, you could call it the training of how to becoming a director, is to understand what are the challenges an actor faces how does it feel to be out there? How does it feel to be in front of the camera and so on and so forth? And um, so that's part of it. And then I think it's about learning to observe very, very closely what helps or what hinders somebody in their performance trajectory. And that's so individual. Some people, for example, need to analyze a role. They need to sit down together and talk and talk and talk about the backstory or whatever. For some people, it's something much more kinetic and tactile, like the clothes, the way of moving. For others, it's it's finding ways to hook personal experience onto the grafter, in a way, onto the character that they're playing through a process of empathy and compassion. So learning what works by observing the different things that one can say or do, and then seeing did that help or not help, and making adjustments accordingly. I try and be the first and best audience that each actor will ever have. So that means watching really carefully and closely, looking with full attention and with an attitude of respect and love, actually, for the actor's work and the risks they're taking or I'm asking them to take. And I think that creates the conditions in which people can, can themselves work well and deliver what they've learned on, in their lifetime of work. So it becomes a true collaboration in that way. Well, because no matter how experienced an actor is, there's still the element of vulnerability. There absolutely is. And, and when you create conditions in which it's safe to admit it, most actors will say that they spend a lot of their time feeling terrified, terrified that they're going to fail, terrified they're going to do it wrong, they're not going to please the director, they're not going to please the critics, they're not going to please themselves, whatever. And I think that vulnerability, actually, is a necessary part of the area that um, actors go into in order to create a kind of transparent feeling on the screen where you can relate to them, where they can invite you in to the world that they're embodying. And that's the difference between a great actor and uh, an okay actor or a non-actor indeed is that some people become peculiarly kind of invisible on the screen. You can't feel you can't know them or see them properly uh, there's something in the way, some obstacle. And these really great actors, it's as if they're opening a door into which you can come in to their experience, to what they're living or thinking or feeling or projecting. It's, it becomes a kind of what we think of as presence on the screen, charisma. You entered film in an unconventional way because you were a dancer. Uh, you did experimental film uh, along with the same era as Derek Jarman, for example. Uh, you said that you you grew up in a family in which everything was questioned. How did all of this unusual way, first of all, make you do what you want to do and make you an independent in a way, even within the British film industry, because you've almost always very much chosen your own projects? I've written my own projects, all of them. So, um, yeah, I think that the perhaps this rather strange route that I had... Um, which actually started at a very young age from just picking up a camera and just doing it. So I went straight into the role of director. I didn't kind of work my way up. It's where I began was as a director. But then I stepped sideways to learn and understand uh, more about what I was trying to do, indeed, through dance, through music, through live performance and so on, and short films. But I think if you're not trained formally, and I have no formal training in filmmaking at all, then... I wasn't subject to rules and conventions because I didn't know what they were. <laughs> so um, I think that has gives you certain advantages in that it means that there's an absolute instinct for experimentation as a way of finding out what works and a kind of boldness because you don't realize just exactly what you're starting into and what demands it's going to make of you. and Nobody's told you it's impossible, so you just try it anyway. 
And then there's, you know, maybe some disadvantages that it also means that the things that you do that don't work, you make, you can make very public, have very public moments of, of failure of living up to what you want to do. You're unprotected in a sense. But the journey of the self-taught has got its pitfalls, but it's also got its strengths. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Sally Potter, whose new film is called The Party. American audiences who would come to the party. What preconceptions should they leave behind before they go to see it? Oh, they don't need to leave anything behind or take anything in. They just need to come um, um, expecting to have a good night out. But I think, uh, you know, it would be nice for them to be open, open to, to laughing. But I think there are no shoulds. You know, I, I, I trust audiences very much. And I think audiences are always... Um, uh, should should be respected more. The both their intelligence and their, their speed to understand things and read things. Most people are extremely sophisticated and able to figure out what's going on. So there are no shoulds. There are no oughts. And when you finished the film, how did you feel about it? When I finished which part of it? Because as you know, <laughs> film is takes it goes through so many phases. Right, right. There was the finishing the script. Well, okay, so you finished the script. The shoot, finishing the casting, finishing the finishing the shoot, finishing the edit, finishing the sound mix, finishing. <laughs> you know, it goes on and on. I'm finishing the the opening, going around with it. The opening, finishing the you know talking to people about it, as we are now. So I think it's a very long and varied process of film, and and it goes through all those mutations and transformations and finds its own life. Um, but I've now forgotten what the question was that led me into that answer. <laughs> well, the question was, how, you know, how you felt about it when it was finished. But obviously, oh. there were many, many finishing. Yeah. finishing. Well, I can tell you that when I, I can tell you how it felt at the first premiere in okay. the Berlin Film Festival, with the first time I saw it with a mm. huge audience, because I think it's you know maybe nearly three thousand people in the cinema, and to sit through the screening with the actors and hear the audience just rocking with laughter was wonderful. It was a wonderful validation of the film. And surprising to me was that so many people afterwards said that they came out from the film feeling better. And I thought, now they've watched some really tough stuff in a way and seen people suffering in certain ways, but it induces laughter. And um, and I think laughter is a kind of medicine and a very necessary medicine. So for me, that was vindicating and thrilling to hear. But it's the other side of tragedy, right? Because it's walking that middle line, because there's, there is a darker, more serious side always underlying comedy, which is in a way what makes comedy authentic. Yeah, but that's, and for example, that was exactly the line that Charlie Chaplin was always traveling, right? There was right. always a, a heart of melancholy in the middle of these um, amazing amazing moments of laughter. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic, and I've been speaking with filmmaker Sally Potter, whose new film is called The Party. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. And this time we're going to Spain with Instituto Cervantes and their 16th annual Flamenco Festival. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and that's beautiful live music in our studio from the Chicago Flamenco Festival taking place at Instituto Cervantes starting tonight, running through March 21st. It is one of the items we are going to talk about here on Weekend Passport, our look at international things going on around Chicago on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here. Great to see you, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. And by the way, that was Jose Manuel Alconchel, the guitarist. And he's doing a fantastic he's job. Great job. He's doing a great job. And and I want to also get into a couple of other items to mention uh, for the weekend that people uh, should consider. Jeff Mills and Tony Allen with Ron Trent, uh, they're pioneers of Afropop music. They'll be performing uh, Wednesday, February 28th. Uh, and uh, and this, they're pro, uh, performing at the Metro Chicago, uh, Ca- uh, Cabaret Metro Chicago in Wrigleyville uh, at 8 p.m., 7 p.m., uh, 8 p.m., 7 the doors open. And I also, uh, this weekend is the last weekend of the uh, Festival of Films from Iran at the Gene Siskel Film Center. There will be two really great films being shown over there. One is called Tehran Taboo, which is an animated film that is actually that will erase all your preconceptions about Iran as a conservative society. Go catch that over there. And also there is another film by Hossein Khanan. It's called Waiting for Kiarostami. It's about his uh, collaborations with uh, with the great Hossein Kiarostami. I'll be doing the Q&A on Sunday night over there after the 5 p.m. screening. Oh, good. You're going to be busy. And I know these are things close to your heart, the annual Festival of Films from Iran at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And, of course, everybody loves uh, your previous mention was Jeff Mills, the techno pioneer with Tony Allen, the Afrobeat pioneer who was with Fela, and uh, that'll be a terrific show at the Metro on Wednesday. Now let's get to the Flamenco Festival. Yeah, but the Flamenco Festival is also, and Institute Cervantes are very close to my heart. They're a very important institution, and they enrich the cultural life of the city. And the Flamenco Festival, this is the 16th version of it. It's a very, very important event going on in the city at this point, and it's a privilege to have these artists here today. Antonio Martinez is director of the Instituto Cervantes in Chicago. Great to see you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me here. Uh, for Before we get into the Flamenco Festival, for people who've never heard of Instituto Cervantes and what it is and what it does, uh, there's a whole lot more than flamenco music that you do in the course of a year. Uh, explain what you do. Thank you. Instituto Flamenco is uh, an only non-for-profit uh, institution. I believe it's a cultural center that uh, with a mission to promote Spanish language and culture, not only from Spain, but from Latin American countries. And I think we place a ro- we play a role here in Chicago by, you know, serving the community, not only the Hispanic community. The center is, uh, you know, is, uh, really work pretty much on the teaching of Spanish. I think we are the largest teaching Spanish organization in the world. We and then we have a program with uh, monthly cultural activities. I think the Flamenco Festival is one of the leading ones. This is what we a strong one. It's been around for like 16 years now. And I say, but we have a program. It's not only the concert itself. It's, it expands to more uh, films and uh, educational programs that, that uh, related to dance and flamenco that we take to schools. And I think it's, uh, you know, we do a lot of programs with parents. We teach Spanish also for kids, and, and we organize networking, you know, uh, programs with parents and kids. And I think, you know, we are providing, you know, uh, we have a space in the cultural, uh, in, in, in Chicago, in the cultural scene in Chicago. Absolutely. People really should take advantage of it all year long, not yeah. just during the Flamenco Festival. Exactly. Even some great food events I've been to. Mixology <laughs> events true. and food events were really amazing. So, Nari, cool. what do you love about Flamenco? I love flamenco because it speaks uh, a part of the melancholic side of me. And, uh, you know, I come from that uh, Persian tradition, Persian poetry, and love of the melancholic and the sorrows of your life. And 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 what the Spanish tradition of flamenco does, it speaks to that side of me. Maybe there are some roots of flamenco in the Middle East, probably, and going back to northern India and the gypsies. But it just moves me. I don't even when I didn't know and a word of Spanish at one point in my life, it still moved me, and now it moves me even more. 
Absolutely. The, the, the festival itself is running through March 21st. It gets started tonight. We've got some of the great performers who are performing, who are kicking it off with us in the studio. Who are they? Yeah, we have a really, today, an amazing program for tonight with the opening. We are going to pay tribute to one of the greatest uh, legend uh, dancers, Estrella Morena. She's, uh, she's been dancing. Uh, she's here in the studio with us? She's here in the studio with us uh, tonight, today. And she's uh, an amazing, an amazing perform, amazing dancer, an amazing artist. She's been, uh, she started performing with Antonio, who's been the greatest, uh, uh, you know, male flamenco dancer uh, in the history of flamenco in in Spain. And she uh, also Amparo Heredia will be singing. Amparo is has the, the most beautiful flamenco voice. She's, uh, she comes uh, to Chicago and to the festival. It will be the third, fourth time. She's, you know, and she's originally from Malaga, and she's uh, a, a gypsy singer from a, a traditional family, you know, flamenco, flamenco singers, and uh, and they will be accompanied by uh, the, uh, the guitar by Jose Manuel Alconcher, who was just performed a little piece, and with Manolo de Cordoba, who will be also cl- clapping. Well, I am anxious to hear from them. Uh, we've got them here in the studio, and people can see them tonight at the opening festivities of the Flamenco Festival, and um, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, Let's hear a song. Pasado, bailando 
All right. Estrella Morena and friends, uh, that was Amparo Heredia uh, singing there. Terrific job. Really whets the palate for more flamenco music, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. It does. It gets you going for the, gets you into the festival mood for tonight, and also the, it will be going on for the whole several weeks, uh, whole month till March. And Antonio Martinez, what are some of the other highlights of the festival as it moves along here? There's tonight's opening night, but there's a lot more. Yes, we have the the festival goes through the uh, March 21st, and we have a really a very special festival with uh, concerts on Fridays and Saturdays with, uh, I, I will, should mention Nelida Tirado, who is performing next week, La Chimi. And I, I would highlight that this is, a, a, even if flamenco is originally from Spain, it's a truly an international uh, group Absolutely. of performances, people from, you know, different backgrounds. You You're know. weaving in some Chicagoans, I see. <laughs> like Nelida is originally from Puerto Rico. Right. You know, some of the people are based in the, st- in the States, like Chimi is also, you Absolutely. know, even if she's based in Jerez, but she's right. uh, really American. And we have La Banda Morisca, which is also a group, you know, interesting group, I believe, of musicians. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and the, the closing will be, you know, what, another legend of the guitar, the, one of the legends of the flamenco guitar players, Pepe Abichuela, yeah. who will be, you know, with Kike Morente, on, that will be on March 21st. Absolutely. And any ones that you're particularly excited about, Nari? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the closing night one. I, I also like one of the ones that are very more innovative, Cantus, uh, with Amaya Garbancho. She uh, she sings in there. She used to be a professor of Basque literature at the uh, University of Chicago. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> and now she's doing this. So this is going to – she's quite an innovator, and I like her work, so. So people can find out more information at the Instituto Cervantes website? Correct. And you can see the Flamenco Festival, the 16th annual Flamenco Festival in Chicago through March 21st. Thanks very much for doing this for the city. It's just such a wonderful contribution every year and uh, makes everybody feel great. Flamenco Absolutely. 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 Thank you so much. Last week in the wake of the Parkland school shootings, Worldview talked about Australia's gun control efforts. And ever since a massive gun buyback in 1996, Australia has had zero mass shootings. President Donald Trump is going to hold a press conference with the Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull coming up next on WBEZ. We're going to have live coverage of that press conference. It's his first since last week's shooting. So stay tuned for special coverage of President Trump's press conference at 1 here on WBEZ 91.5 FM, Chicago's NPR news station. And we are going to go out with a little more flamenco music. We're going to have another tune. And uh, thanks very much, uh, all of you, for joining us and uh, celebrating the Flamenco Festival at Cervantes Institute.
mi corazón es 